G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. We are going to be talking drugs and alcohol over this next hour and reason being just ahead of World Day Against Illicit Drugs and Trafficking which is scheduled on the calendar for tomorrow. Uh, We'll be well prepared when tomorrow comes with a few thoughts around what is happening with drugs and alcohol in Australia. And along with attention to the challenges of drugs and alcohol, I do want to draw attention today too to a new initiative that's emanating from here in Australia that is helping helping to deepen our understanding of the drug problem that Australia faces and offering ways that we might become more resilient. Now this new program is called the Humpty Dumpty Dilemma. Humpty Dumpty sat on the wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together. Again, it is one of the most favourite nursery rhymes of all time. And it raises important questions. And we'll talk today about how we got to be so fragile in Australia around issues of drugs and alcohol. And we might ask, what are fragile individuals like Humpty Dumpty even doing on a wall? We might ask, did Humpty fall or was Humpty pushed? And why couldn't all the government endeavours to fix Humpty come up with some sort of solution to put Humpty back together again? Well, it is a fun way of talking about some of the big, deep challenges that we face in Australia around illicit drugs and alcohol. So let's talk about some of those questions and the challenges to reduce demand for drugs and alcohol ahead of tomorrow's World Drug a World Day Against Illicit Drugs and Trafficking. Shane Varco is going to be our guest through this next hour. He's the CEO at Dalgano Institute, and it's one of something like 270 members of the World Federation Against Drugs, a global movement. Shane Varco, a special welcome back to 2020. Oh, pleasure to be here, Neil, as always. Thank you for having me. Hey, Shane, I always like to start our conversations Mm -hmm. around drugs and alcohol, just trying to get an idea of how bad the situation, the epidemic is in Australia because it's so underrated uh, in mainstream media. Give us your insights into just how bad the epidemic is. Yeah, Neil, one of the things I don't want to do is, you know, start off with a, and you're right, not initiating this with a uh, sort of a doom and gloom kind of scenario. But what I'll do to start off with is, is the juxtapose between what we're doing with our the three major drugs in the under the national drug strategy umbrella. You got tobacco, you got alcohol, and you've got illicit substances. And it's interesting that our, Australia has got the lowest, arguably the lowest daily tobacco use in the entire world. Uh, and that is a brilliant and exciting and a wonderful achievement. And uh, for a, particularly for a first world West uh, country, it's staggering what we've been able to achieve. Secondly, our alcohol consumption, although during Corona it's become a, an issue again, it's been re, re, uh, re, 
asserting itself in ways that are unhelpful. But of course, we understand some of the dynamics around that and what's driving that uh, that uh, process. But alcohol consumption is there's there's been an increasing uh, and I use the word war or offensive, perhaps a better word, <laughs> against alcohol in, in the in the in the public sector more and more because of the harms being done, not just through, you know, obviously violence and, and domestic and familial violence, but also the health issues that have arisen. So there's been a pushback the last probably 10 years since the binge epidemic we saw uh, back about uh, 2010, 2011. And so we're seeing a, a genuine reduction and a pushback against some of the, the marketing and promotion of alcohol. So that's, that's exciting and, and also good to see that. But when it comes to illicit drugs, under the National Drug Strategy, we've got this really amazing anomaly where there's an, a narrative around illicit drugs that is completely disassociated from the other two substances. With, with for example, with tobacco, there's only one mantra, only one voice, only one message, and only one uh, focus in the in the marketplace, and that is quit. That's it. There's no, there's no other alternative mechanism. Sure, there's a there's journey on the way to cessation. There is difficulties on the way, but the the goalposts. Do not move. It is quick. Now, with alcohol, under the National Drug Strategy, it's been uh, a lot of the process has been around, you know, reduction and moderation, and the messaging is strong with a pushback against some of the harms that have been done, cancer, FASD, fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, and lots of different initiatives that are really pushing into that space and getting advertising out of the marketplace. So really good initiatives to reduce the demand. But when it comes to illicit drugs, there's only one sort of thing in place, and it ignores the other two, and that is... Uh, sadly, the message getting through to the community is keep using, just don't die. Keep using, just don't die. And that, so you see the juxtapose between the two, the three messaging and what's being successful. So we're seeing massive reductions in cigarette, uh, tobacco use. We're seeing significant movements towards reduction in alcohol, but we're seeing an increase in the use of illicit substances. And look how they're tied to the messaging around demand reduction. That's what I want to start off with today, Neil. Okay. All right. Well, when I think of the epidemic, I'm thinking of a crisis. And mm. uh, as you rightly say, uh, some good stories to tell for our Australian society. But from time to time, uh, there'll be a rise in the reporting of things like an ice epidemic. Correct. And uh, crazy people doing crazy things, hurting medical staff, uh, robbing people blind. Uh, then the rise in marijuana use and the push for use of marijuana and making that legal, as is happening in places like mm-hmm. the ACT. Uh, then there's issues that we're all more familiar with around alcohol use. And then from time to time, you'll hear of the other uh, silent epidemic of the increase in prescri- prescription drug use. Correct. Uh, so yeah. when you put them all together, that really yes. creates a major issue, doesn't it? Oh, look, absolutely, and there's no argument around that. One of the difficulties in the public health sector is is that a lot of people try and avoid, you know, explosive narratives because, they're, they're, again, it's unless it suits the agenda of the particular reporting agency, uh, that we won't go to that. But one of the things around the substance use is that, uh, and particularly in the healthcare sector, because, as you said rightly, the, the increase in violence against first responders, against medical staff, against um, health health professionals, is staggering. And alcohol was, until recently, the single biggest contributor to that. Now, the co-occurring uh, issues around alcohol and other substances, and so what's happening now is that they're being underreported, and marijuana and ice particularly. Now, what's scary about this is the general public have been led to believe that marijuana is this benign, harmless substance. 
But unfortunately, the, the, the marijuana plant of, you know, 60 years ago is no longer the marijuana plant we are growing today. And the way we process marijuana for the, the engaging and extracting the THC for the maximising of the psychotropic high is now scarily, scarily out of control. And one of the, the concerns is that the violence being perpetrated in a lot of these facilities isn't by necessarily by ICE consumers, but by high-end THC marijuana consumers. Ah. And this is becoming more and more evident, and the healthcare sector is becoming more aware of it and more acutely aware of it because of the violence being perpetrated. So trying to get the data separated out, and you talk to the different people in the sector, you see that this is really concerning. And you're right, when you've got meth particularly, which is a high-end stimulant, and what it does uh, to the to the brain and to the behavioural issues is we, we go into the technicals behind that is staggering, and and the ferocity and and the of the violence is difficult to control, and the harm has been done to staff and to family members is is horrendous. So that's the rip, what we call the ripple effect, and we're not even talking about chemsex here either. And I that's get into that space about what's happening when people are, are on drugs and their sexual activity and the harms done physically and from a disease perspective moving forward is also now being highly reported amongst health sector. And that's another incredibly concerning issue because the healthcare costs around that are, are escalating. Okay, well, I want to invite listeners to join into our conversation today because we're going to be talking about Humpty Dumpty, uh, that wonderful old nursery rhyme and uh, some deep things that we can glean as we ask questions about the Humpty Dumpty story. And if we get to Humpty Dumpty here, Shane, uh, mm-hmm. I guess what we're talking about is this tension that there is in the way uh, people push their own agenda here, uh, whether they are seeking harm reduction or demand reduction. Now, for some, this is a confusing thing that, uh, what are you really talking about here? Give us a a very straightforward uh, way that we might think about uh, the different outcomes of whether you are pursuing harm reduction or demand reduction. Okay, that's, that's, I'll try and do that succinctly and quickly because it's quite involved. The National Drug Strategy, which has been reinstituted from 2016 to 2025, I think it is, is in play now. You've got three pillars in that, three important pillars, all important and all valuable. You've got a demand reduction is now the first pillar and foremost pillar, supply reduction and harm reduction. Okay, now harm reduction is supposed to be the ambulance driver at the bottom of the cliff. It's a last resort, supposed to be, for those caught in the tyranny, the awful tyranny of addiction, not those experimenting with drugs, hoping that they won't get caught in the tyranny of addiction, but it's supposed to be for those caught in the tyranny of addiction to reduce the life-threatening harms that they may be involved with whilst you help them exit drug use. That's supposed to be harm reduction. Now, what's happened is certain players in the sector have hijacked that term and made and talked about harm reduction as the national drug strategy or interchanged harm reduction and harm minimization terms. And that's not true. Harm minimization has three pillars. Now, supply reduction is pretty clear. In other words, when you don't have supply or supply is hard to get, consumption is reduced. That's a, that's a general principle. So supply reduction continues to be important. Of course, that's vital. But demand reduction, which is ostensibly ignored in the illicit drug space, is the key issue. Again, when you reduce demand for a product, product production doesn't, well, it diminishes as well. No one's going to buy a product 
no one's sorry, no one's going to produce a product that no one's purchasing. So when you reduce demand, you reduce supply, and you also reduce uh, the harms done from it. So that's, that is the absolute, it's what they call primary prevention, upstream prevention. And that's the key driver. Now it's been made the first pillar, but you wouldn't think so with the way the policy is implemented in the marketplace. It's almost ignored, unless it's tobacco. And then it's fully and utterly engaged. One voice, one focus, one message. To reduce demand, reduce demand, reduce demand. Hitting the supply button as well by upping taxation, uh, putting them behind counters. All sorts of things are being done. And it's working. It's working remarkably well. When you've got legislation, education and judicial exercises all working together, you change culture. Uh, We can't, for some reason, and I, I have my suspicions, uh, in the, the sector refuses to apply the same principles in the illicit drug space, which, by the way, is only about, arguably, if you take cannabis out, 3 to 4% of the population. You leave weed in, it's about 10 11% of the population. So we've had 40, uh, sorry, about, an aggregate of about 52% of the population smoking after World War II daily. We're able to reduce that down to 14 nationally on a legal drug, but they're telling us we can't shift a 10% demographic in drug use down with the same mechanism. So there's something really, really not right in this context, and that's that's, that's a conversation for another day, perhaps. And uh, there might be listeners who want to contribute into that space. Uh, 1-800-316-316 to join in our conversation today as we talk about uh, issues around drugs and alcohol. 1-800-316-316. You might have your own story to tell. You might like to contribute your own thoughts around Humpty Dumpty. Let's come to the Humpty Dumpty dilemma here, Shane. Uh, you've, uh, you've, you've, you're the one really who has uh, has taken the Humpty Dumpty nursery rhyme, and uh, you've asked some questions here and uh, adapting that into the drugs and alcohol space. Uh, take us into your thoughts here in developing this idea. Yeah, look, it started probably uh, 11, 12 years ago, just prior to starting in this in this particular role that I'm in at the moment. Um, but it made its its most, I think, most apt application to to the drug space. And I remember being in a school and just uh, just sharing with a group of young people, I think, I think year, year in students. And I just coined the, the the literally coined the the particular nursery rhyme. And then I unpacked it right there. And what happened was, it's a bit of a, a kind of an aha moment for the for the classroom. And and I thought, okay, well, this is this is a good narrative segue. Let's you know, let's look at this. So I started to unpack that. And I thought, well, gee, this is really quite an inventory of our culture. Um, and let's look at the, you know, the last 150 years of you know, generational behaviour and conduct and development and, and influences and, and see where, where this has led us. And I, so when you go back and have what they call an anthropological look at uh, you know, what's been going on the last 120, 130 years, you see some really interesting th- phenomena start to present and you go, wow, this is... No wonder you know, young people are sort of struggling sometimes to, to get a grip on reality and get a grip on what's going on around them, and and then what influences are being brought to bear on that confused space, and how easily uh, it is to manipulate someone, and particularly if you introduce a psychotropic substance into that into that very volatile context of you know confusion and doubt and not and and, and no clarity, then all of a sudden you know it, it's easy to pitch uh, a drug sale into that context. So you know you increase the demand by you know destabilizing a culture and I think that's you know that, that, that you can into some quite profound things here but that's why 
there's so much more needed than simply programs and ideas and information. We need to have something a little bit more robust in the marketplace. So we started, you know, doing our seminars around that. And what we've done recently because of COVID was we thought, well, rather than just have the seminars which are hard to deliver, we, we create a coaching tool. So it's a more of a, uh, a video coaching tool. Anyone can use parent, teacher, coach, mentor, uh, caregiver, youth worker, chaplain, whoever's out there doing caring for young people and developing, they can actually engage this easy-to-use sort of video uh, lesson and they can bounce out of that whichever way they want to go, whatever your, your paradigm is, your worldview is, your, your agenda for young people may be, you can actually bounce off this and actually show them how substances uh, undermine your resiliency and, and, in fact, catastrophically undermine your resiliency in so many ways and, and also help them become more robust in pushing back against that, that very real pitch into the culture. Okay. Well, if Humpty Dumpty was addicted to drugs or alcohol, did Humpty fall or was he pushed? You can respond to that question on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash vision radio. This is 2020 with Neil Johnson, helping you make sense of life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. Talk back line open, 1-800-316-316 if you'd like to join in our conversation today and you might have your own thoughts around drug and alcohol issues in Australia and you might like to contribute perhaps on a lighter note as we come around a very serious topic in talking about Humpty Dumpty. And our Facebook question today asks, if Humpty Dumpty was addicted to drugs or alcohol, did Humpty fall or was Humpty pushed? You can respond to that at facebook.com forward slash vision radio. Our special guest is Shane Varco from Dalgano Institute. Let's unpack this a little bit, Shane. Uh, We're talking about Humpty Dumpty, the Humpty Dumpty Mm -hmm. dilemma here. Some important questions come out of this when you look a little bit deeply into the nursery rhyme. Uh, Let's start with this idea of uh, how we got to be fragile around drugs and alcohol. Uh, How did Humpty get to be on the wall? How did we get to be on the wall? What are your thoughts here? Yeah, Yeah, look, again, when you open this up in the classroom and and with young people particularly, they ask that question. That's, again, one of the reasons why we created the the video sort of uh, curriculum addendum was to kind of get that conversation going because young people have their own insights of you know what's if the the fragility they're experiencing in their own world or often we find young people that they've got this kind of malaise this kind of this angst or whatever that is not just the the, the adolescent you know hormonal angst there's something more going on and and they're not able to put their finger on it and until they have a conversation they've got something to anchor their their those feelings too and once they they open up a framework about fragility it's not an accusation it's a it's a uh, an observation that they go yeah well that 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 actually makes sense i i i i feel a, a yeah i'm out of sorts i i i don't want to be uh, fragile i don't label myself that but at the same time that's kind of that insecurity that uh, i'm not sure what's coming next trying to figure out where to go you know all the the noise and messaging and various voices in the marketplace screaming at me and and uh, I'm told you know I've got all these things I can do and then all these things I and there's very few voices saying what I can't do uh, and all these I've got all these directions but no map and I've got no script and I've got no and so it all and all of a sudden you know again when you've got confusion and when you've got that kind of noise happening 
that again, the mar- it's a market is dream space. They they come in and they they say they push the the their solution. Like I, oh, we have an answer for that. Here, try this. You know this this product. There may not be something you know nefarious, but try this product. This could work for you. And again, that's the beauty about the marketing environment we live in. Not for for the human being, but for the marketer. Is that when you've got a mess and you've got perceived or real issues going on, then coming out with a perceived or real answer is what gets your attention. So Humpty Dumpty, it's a cultural creation. When you take out sort of cultural anchors, you take out maps and scripts from the culture, you, and, and you remove a compass, for example, from, from a person's kind of really just wandering aimlessly, looking for a bit of direction, and whichever's the most loud and most attractive voice may get the attention. And, of course, in the drug space, it's not just about you know some seedy drug dealer offering you a, a, you know, a potential high uh, in, in some seedy corner of a room. It's usually friends you know, who have embraced a culture, who think it's about partying and fun and just, you know, whatever. And so that's that sales pitch, sales pitch of, you know, just blast fun, have whatever, to overrun that sense of, you know, disconnect from reality is a very attractive pitch. So the fragility is 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 a vulnerability, not necessarily in that context, not necessarily a framework of uh, I'm weak and I don't know what I'm doing. It's more of a, just a, a real vulnerability that they're unaware of. And again, a marketer's dream. And when you say the idea of removing the compass, and yep. this is one of the challenges we have in a uh, more secularised and increasingly, in my opinion, becoming more secularised society, uh, that the compass is no longer uh, something that the community recognises has a particular direction, points north, uh, but the compass is pointing in all sorts of directions. And as you say, the loudest voice gets the attention or the coolest looking voice gets the attention. And, and, uh, And I guess when people are not exposed to the sorts of information that you're able to deliver... Uh, it's very easy to be in that fragile state of being open to all sorts of voices that might lead you one way or another. Yeah, and of course, you know, everyone's entitled to make whatever, you know, ad- adopt and adapt whatever worldview and or belief system and or whatever they, they choose to do. That's the beauty of living in a, uh, a free culture. So it's, it's that that's true. But when, the, the, like I said, there's so many different messages and voices and most of them, uh, in fact, many of them aren't, not most of them, many of them aren't helpful. And this, the drug issue is the biggest problem because, you know, for example, and, and not to diminish the harms of, uh, of other addictive mechanisms and everything from gaming through to pornography through to uh, gambling, all those have addictive properties to them. And we know how they work on the brain and, and the, the amygdala and the hippocampus and, and it, all those kind of mechanisms are affected. But the illicit substances have a dramatic and instant shift in those spaces. It's not over a period of time. This happens like instantaneously. First time, I'm not saying it's a bad or devastating one, but it shifts brain function and chemistry. And so you want to really mess a young person up fast and really get them absolutely fragile, give them a drug, give them an illicit substance. And that's the scariest thing in all this space, Neil. That, that's the thing that frightens us uh, as, as a collective group of uh, a coalition of educators, which includes parents, which includes teachers, which includes youth workers. We're seeing that this, this is a, a really devastating 
and 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 often it, it's not impossible to unravel, but it takes so long to walk back out of this space. Um, and we're not just talking about you know one incident in your addictive. We're not talking about addiction. We're talking about the way it structures the brain and also how we then perceive the world and how we deal with issues, which is one of the biggest things that we, that, that we are struggling with. It reduces a person's resiliency. Drugs takes that away faster than anything else because when they go when issues present again, difficulties, trauma, trial circumstances that overwhelm then the their capacity has been reduced by the drug intake and of course when that drug is left their system their their capacity is reduced and the escalation the amplification of the problem the perception of the problem it grows because <gasps> i can't cope and then also what happens then is they i know what helped me cope last time it was the weed it was the meth it was that so they jump back in and once you've got that mechanism working that fragility is almost in concrete and that's what's scary and so we'll get, again walking back out of that can be done but it takes a lot of work particularly for the developing brain let's bring this right down to a family unit and uh, no matter what that family unit might consist of mum dad or single parent and kids coming to teenage years uh, the idea of being fragile uh, let's assume that every family has its fragilities uh, the opposite to that might be and I think you uh, used the word uh, resilience. You said, uh, you know, you leave that resiliency and and move to fragile. But let's talk about how you might come out of being fragile for every individual family because uh, you don't have to be going along the same pathway as everybody else here. You might see that there is fragility in so many families, but you don't have to choose that fragile path yourself. Give us some insights here into what you do to create and build uh, that resilience into your own family. Oh, look, <laughs> that's a huge question and look, a, a valuable one, of course, Neil, but uh, I, I don't want to get, as you know, what I can do, I can talk for hours about this, but let's let's try and be succinct. Without giving cookie-cutter instant answers, I, I don't want to do that either. Resiliency is, is built around, um, again, anthropological, not just sociological principles. By that I mean you go beyond the, the, the interactions within your social setting, and the factors that influence that, you go beyond that into the more anthropological space. In other words, the whole of the human experience. So you need to look at, uh, anthropologists look at you know, not just values uh, and belief systems uh, and uh, rules and regulations, but they look at the worldviews that form those. So in other words, you know, why, why, do we, yeah, why do we want to act and, and or function in a certain way? What are the belief systems behind that? What is the worldview that informs that? And so that, whatever that worldview is and, and sustainability, has to give you credible, uh, you know, the argument about a worldview, it has to have an origin, it has to have a meaning, it has to have a morality, and it has to have a destiny. That's the fundamentals of a worldview. Anthropologists look at that. What's, what successful cultures, healthy cultures, strong, resilient cultures have in common? And so they can start with that space. Now, a lot of families don't do that because they're bombarded by the sociological realities of market and noise and brand and the flight is fad and what makes kids happy and so you get overwhelmed by that but you've got to get behind that noise and say okay well that's all fun and that can be great and enjoyable and but it's not what life is it's an at best an addendum it's just an add-on what real life is about relationships it's about what you believe to be true what you believe to be right what your values are you know how you develop healthy 
environments physically. So your, the, what the diet you have, uh, the exercise you're involved with, you know, all those things are absolutely the human unit's quite a complex one, and all these things interplay to bring about the health. And so, you know, you're sitting around watching video games all day, not exercising and eating, you know, McDonald's or, you know, whatever junk food, you know, three meals a day. You are going to be psychologically, physically and emotionally an unhealthy person, uh, despite anything else that's going on. So there's a a complex, you know, mix of things in play here. And so families need to be thinking about, you know, well, what what do we believe as a family? What what is, what is as a family do we want to? Shane, have? there are two hundred and seventy odd members in the World Federation Against Drugs. It is a global movement. And uh, Shane, just before we get back to Humpty Dumpty, this is a global movement. And this World Federation Against Drugs, it's looking for evidence based uh, ways to reduce demand. Uh, give us a little insight into just how significant this movement is around the world. Yeah, look, it uh, it kind of really got initiated, uh, freshly initiated out of Sweden back in uh, this new this new endeavour in in 2010, uh, or actually a bit earlier than that. But but it was the Swedes who actually uh, through Niels Birut uh, who recalibrated their very bad drug policy back in the 60s and 70s to actually push back against the drug issue because all the some of the things that we're experiencing now around illicit substances, they they were basically all in play in Sweden in the late 60s and early 70s and worse than they are now. And they were basically let off the chain. The idea was let's do, do harm reduction only. In other words, do whatever drug you want, we'll try and fix you later. And, of course, that created chaos and uh, the pushback against that took quite a while. But once they got it arrested and developed, they, the Swedish community created a whole new demand reduction uh, and initiative, which actually saw the country's drug use plummet. I mean, to one of the lowest in the world up until, uh, yeah, even recently, still one of the lowest in the world. So, again, they focused away from harm reduction only to demand reduction priority and being really, really using every facet of their community, law, education, family, community, as, as we've done with tobacco, that is, with illicit drugs, to see the change. And it's been staggering. And so they started this, this uh, initiative in Sweden. The Queen of Sweden was the, patri- uh, the patron of that. And, um, so, and that launched, and it's just grown exponentially ever since. We're, we're heading towards 280 different member groups, states from all over the world. In fact, a, a large majority, a large number of them are coming out of out of Africa and Asia, so it's it's fascinating to see this uh, this growing movement and uh, yeah, so that's that's kind of a little bit of history of the F- WFAD. Okay, we're taking calls on one eight hundred three sixteen three sixteen. Let's hear from Joseph in Blacktown in Sydney. Hi, Joseph. Welcome. Oh, hey, thank Joseph. you for taking my call. Hi, Joseph. What are your thoughts? Um, yeah, a lot of this, um, a lot of this um, uh, drug use uh, is primarily uh, um, for, for a mind-altering experience. I think the, the Bible speaks of, in a few different places, of sorcery. The Greek word being pharmacia, uh, uh, ingesting, inhaling, uh, swallowing anything for mind-altering experience. And in, in a couple of simple things, I think we can do uh, as well as Christians and also as, as uh, concerned citizens and parents is that we can encourage. Uh, young men, as Paul advises in Titus chapter 2, to be sober-minded, to explain to them the, the dangers of, of ingesting things for just purely for a mind-altering experience. And the other thing that we can do, that, uh, apart from encouraging our youngsters to be sober-minded, is we can actually be wise in how we cast our votes. Let, let us, as, as Christians, not, not cast votes for, for any leaders that, that condone uh, or encourage 
this type of, of, of uh, behavior of ingesting mind-altering, uh, mind-altering substances. And, and those are two very simple things um, we can do as Christians to help uh, protect our youngsters and, and to help in this battle um, that, that's a scourge in our society. Joseph, great thoughts there. A response from Shane? Uh, look, yeah, that sounds great. Uh, Joseph, appreciate that insights. Just uh, one, of, one of the academics that we deal with, just so you brought up that pharmacothea uh, pharma issue, uh, he's written a book called, interestingly enough, called, and he's a professor and academic and medical doctor. It's called Let My People Go, interestingly enough. Uh, and it's purely based around the drug space and obviously echoes the sentiments that's just been shared by the, the caller. But that's worth a look at, uh, Joseph, if that's that's your space. Let's call Let My People Go uh, by uh, Dr. Stuart Reith. Um So it's worth having a look at. But, yeah, look, again, I'd say mentoring, uh, you know, men mentoring young men and, you know, developing them in, in safe, healthy ways. All those kind of mechanisms are incredibly valuable, yes, indeed. Uh, Joseph, thank you so much for your call. Our talkback line open 1-800-316-316 to join in our talkback conversation today. Uh, just before we move back to Humpty Dumpty, um, Joseph raised an interesting issue there about people's attraction to some illicit drugs, the idea of... Uh, getting into the hallucination effect, uh, looking for the experience. And and uh, I've heard stories on uh, a number of sides here, and I'll get your thoughts, Shane, that uh, once people get into a sense of uh, experiencing hallucinations, uh, for some it's so scary uh, that they regret ever doing that. Uh, what are your thoughts about the, the drive that some people have in the curiosity and the experimentation? Okay, <laughs> this is opening up a big, a big issue. But the term "high," people say, you know, getting high. It's actually, you know, I heard this uh, spoken about uh, by a number of different folk in different settings, uh, philosophers, uh, religious people, uh, uh, even uh, even philosophical uh, academics. The, the 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 word "getting high" means to get above, and it's a substitute for transcendence. And it's interesting when when I heard that, I thought, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So there's there's a, a, a an innate driver for us to experience something a little bit beyond what we perceive in in our, our current uh, material framework. There's a sense of okay, well, is there something more? So what people do is that they they don't want to engage in a religious framework or a, uh, or a spiritual framework. They they believe those things are, are not relevant, but they'll engage in a well, they have an experience with a drug, uh, and, and some of them are, are, can be very, very good at the start, and this is the problem. Most people have a really, although we, I know a lot of people have had incredibly bad experiences with drugs, but they've kept going with a bad after experience after bad experience after bad experience until they got a good experience just so they can keep up with their friends. I've got many stories in that context, but, but people, if you have a really nasty experience, first up, most people don't go back. It's like, well, I don't want to go there again. But it's the good experience, the perceived good experience. And there are actually drugs out there. I'm not going to name them. But they're, uh, one of them has actually got the nickname the God Drug. In other words, you have the most powerful so-called spiritual experience, according to the users, uh, on this drug. So the idea of everyone seems to have this driver, the perception we have, as this driver for something a little bit more. It's not just feeling better or feeling high or, or feeling whatever. It's actually, there's something more that they're looking for and they believe a drug, 
that alters their brain chemistry can give them that thing that that transcendent experience but unfortunately it is just a chemical rearrangement and it can never give any meaning that's the problem no drug experience can give you meaning and so therefore you have to go back to the same thing again to get that same sense and of course with each episode you your your brain is unfortunately breaking down and different ways and you are diminished experience so therefore you become in the road to addiction or dependency is very very strong so yeah it's it's interesting but yeah a lot of people have incredibly bad experiences with the psychedelics particularly and uh, that that creates psychotic breaks sometimes that sometimes don't get repaired uh, what a powerful insight, that sense in which we are wired for a transcendent experience. Uh, but if you seek your transcendent experience by getting high on a drug, it is a value-free zone and uh, you never know what you'll experience and it won't have any compass associated with that transcendent experience if you're seeking the drug high. Uh, look, we're taking calls on one 800 316 and you can leave a note to a comment on our Facebook post today. It's a poll and asking a question that is all about the Humpty Dumpty nursery rhyme. If Humpty Dumpty was addicted to drugs or alcohol, did Humpty fall or was he pushed? And Beverly has responded online and Beverly says, Shane, I'll get your thoughts here. Because sure. the drugs have the ability to cause addiction immediately, there is no safe use level. I agree with Shane. The cultural atmosphere is not protecting people from these drugs. So our culture is pushing us off the wall. So there's a response to the question. Uh, yeah. So well, yeah. you know, we're, so there's a, there's a push response. What are your thoughts here for what Beverly is, is saying? Yeah, look, I, I think, again, the invitation, let's go back one step further, I, I concur, but much, much in our culture is driving into this space, of course. But the argument is, you know, the invitation is to, for a fragile individual to come up on the wall in the first place. So it's like this whole bringing them up to a place where they think, uh, oh, look at me! I'm, you know, let's let's run with that analogy. Look at me. We've done this in schools. Look at me. I'm up here. Look how look how is am I reckless? Am I am I adventurous? Am I experimenting or am I exploring? And then I'm up there, and then I've been mean, led to believe this is this is I can manage this space. I've got control of this very precarious space, and that's that's the fabrication that does the biggest damage this perception of invincibility in a fragile from a fragile individual in a precarious position and then of course all you need and look the wall let's say the wall is you know 60 centimeters wide you know and I, and if i've got a good stance i'm alert i'm prepared i've braced myself someone could give me a bit of a push i might wobble but i'm not going to fall but someone else if i'm just sort of standing there on the edge of it sort of wobbling not braced, not not alert, not thinking about my precarious position, and someone gives me a little nudge, I topple and go bang. So again, why am I getting invited into this space? And then why why would someone invite me into a precarious position, and then give me a little nudge? So there is there's that that pushing factor, and this is what we talk about. We also delineate between the drug pusher and the drug promoter and the drug permitter. They're more up the line. They're on, as we heard from before from Joseph, the political level, there are some that are going, well, they're the permitters and the promoters. They're not pushing the drug. Oh, no, 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 no. We're not saying young people should use drugs. 
but they'll permit frameworks and they'll promote frameworks that enable drug use to be accepted and promulgated into the community. Now, they're very dangerous individuals. So, Shane, we'll come back to did Humpty fall or was Humpty pushed? But there's this other question that comes with this whole nursery rhyme. Why couldn't all the government endeavours fix Humpty when he fell? Uh, Give us your insights here into uh, what happens at the bottom of the wall. Yeah, one of the difficulties, and this is why um, harm reduction, you know, as, as an ambulance driving palliative care model, sadly, is the only position often governments can adopt. Not because uh, that's the only one available to them, but because the political will to to adopt another one is a, is a tough breach. Because what you're doing once you adopt a uh, a fence with, with the term we call fence building model at the top of the so we want to do, build fences of protection and proactive pre- prevention, not uh, building fences of constriction and denial, which is what the, the, the bad actors in the, the marketplace want to promote. Then when you start doing that, you actually uh, you are embracing a prescriptive model. And governments are scared to start prescribing because they think they're going to breach an individual's values. And this is one of the difficulties about a culture that it's, it's basically drives itself on the idea that you know everyone is right and everyone's behaviour is okay. Uh, yet we see the harms from so many behaviours which are not best practice, and and clearly one of the drivers behind evaluating whether a behaviour is is uh, appropriate, inappropriate, good or bad, using those terms, and getting away from the moral ethical framework. Let's talk about best practice. So, what behaviour leads to the best health outcomes, the best mental health outcomes? the best familial outcomes, what best practices lead to the least violence, the least road toll, the least uh, sexually transmitted infections. The least. They're, they're the, the behaviours that need to be promoted, not from an ethical or moral perspective, purely from a, a pragmatic perspective of healthier and safer environments and, and community frameworks. So they're the models that should be embraced and promoted, and, they're, they're, and those prescriptions should be implied. Now, we've done it with tobacco. We've, we've prescribed tobacco is bad. It's just bad. And if you smoke in this culture, according to all the marketing framework, you're a leper, and that's awful. I mean, we talk about stigmatising the smoker, and I'm, not, and I'm not suggesting we should stigmatise anybody, but there seems to be no lack of stigmatising the smoker but we won't stigmatise the drinker or the illicit drug user. In fact, heaven forbid if we did that. So it's fascinating that the, the, the dichotomy in play because the social and political will has been cultivated so that the government says, yeah, we're all on the same page here. I, I, I'm not going to lose votes by slamming cigarettes. But if I start slamming illicit drug use, I could lose votes. But why? Why isn't best practice for the developing brain, for the for the family, for the health of the community. Using drugs, isn't that the best practice? Shane, yeah, well, it is, but, but, but yeah, here we go. yeah. Let's bring this down to an even more street mm-hmm. level here because uh, the latest news this week, and I think uh, it was announced last week, uh, in your state of Victoria where there's going to be a second injecting room in Melbourne. Yeah. Now, are we talking here, let's, uh, let's just keep our Humpty Dumpty uh, illustration in place here. 
with an injecting room, and, and it may be more complicated than just simplifying it as what I'm asking sure. you to do, is is sure. this uh, protecting Humpty at the bottom of the cliff or is this actually a fence at the top uh, or uh, when we talk the wall uh, with Humpty? Uh, what are your thoughts just briefly here? Look, look, injecting rooms, like all harm reduction mechanisms have great potential for good if there is one clear focus from the harm reduction mechanism, whether it be needle and syringe programs, whether it be injecting rooms, uh, those kind of mechanisms, if there is, uh, and methadone programs or OST programs, if there is no sunset clause, no exit strategy from those mechanisms, in other words, we want to intervene with the drug user to, to help them find the healthiest way to exit drug use. And if exiting drug use isn't the goal and there isn't a sunset clause within a short period of time for that mechanism, all it does is it gets hijacked by bad actors. The the program is is, then it's hijacked by people who want to promote drug use. So all of a sudden it's the right of the drug user to use a drug ongoing without any exit strategy in play ad infinitum at the taxpayer's expense. Okay. And so, the idea is that we're saving lives. But I don't want to get into that, but so harm reduction is an incredibly important and valuable tool in the harm in the harm minimization strategy. But if it doesn't promote the exit from drug use, but in fact is used to promote the ongoing use of drugs, is actually a bad use of the of the platform. Not a bad platform, a bad and a misuse of the platform. Okay. Yeah, you know, can I just jump in yep. I want to, I want to leave the, your, your listeners with a couple of proactive things they can do as families sure, for building sure. resiliency. Yep. Just a couple of we're talking talking philosophically here, we're talking big picture. Look what the science tells us, the evidence base tells us that when families, whether they're a single family, they're a blended family, whether a you know, whatever family they are, with simple things like that, even if they are a poor socioeconomically disadvantaged family the science tells us that if you're actively involved in your student's school you're helping them with their homework even if you're not sure how to do the homework you're actually doing that on a regular basis that along with regular meals at the kitchen at the dining room table without the television or devices three to four times a week those two mechanisms alone let alone anything else we've talked about will do a huge uh, effective impact have a huge sorry effective impact on the resiliency of young people growing up in families. Those two mechanisms alone, there's many more, can do a great deal. So doing your homework with your kids, being interested in their school, being involved in their school and eating meals together at the table away from devices and television make a big difference. Wow. So that's the sort of resilience that we want to see in our families. And uh, as you say, Shane, this is actually not so much rocket science because we know that values are passed on. They're caught rather than taught. And what you're saying here is that when families get together around the table, if they're interested in one another's day-to-day life, into their schooling and their homework and being interested in our children, and uh, as you say, just three or four times a week, that has a major effect on resilience and that's the sort of thing that you know without getting scientific about the word you're giving us an insight here which is simple but profound and we need to look for those sorts of answers don't we correct absolutely now okay we are running out of time tomorrow is uh, this uh, day a world day against illicit drugs and trafficking and uh, is there any particular thing that uh, that will be happening tomorrow that you're aware of, Shane? Insofar as uh, you know, I know this. You know, we're part of the reason why we're having this conversation today is because there's been a a campaign into this space for tomorrow. Uh, is there anything else to look forward to? 
Look, there's lots of different uh, groups doing different things, um, and the emphasis this year from the United Nations, who, who obviously host and promote this event, uh, we're part of the the, the uh, Vienna group of that, so we're we're also members in that space. Is that they're talking about, you know, um, best this year's a focus is on best practice, you know, better reporting. Uh, making sure we're getting the best evidence into the marketplace. So there's lots of different things flying around the place. We've decided this year to focus because there's, you know, we've got the three pillars. We're focusing on demand reduction because that is the the single most important pillar and the one most neglected by the current uh, interpretation of the drug strategy. So, and we know that building resilience in the young people, building resilience into families reduces the demand for drugs. We know that you know resilient families don't want drugs. Resilient communities don't use them. They just don't because there's no need to. We've seen with Iceland, they've done that in Iceland. The entire uh, national framework was re- recalibrated to this end and they, they've they introduced all these resiliency developing mechanisms into that community. It's a bit of a unique setting, but other, other places around the world, including local governments, are embracing the model. In other words, more sport, more family time, uh, great knowing where your kids are, being involved with school, home, all the things I've talked about, they've implemented on a large scale and they've seen that reduce drug use and, and, and aberrant behaviour across the board in the young people. So again, all of this is, drug use is just another symptom of a, of a, of a culture in crisis. And, and so we've got to ask some hard questions about what we're doing as a culture and being more effective at promoting resiliency and building capacity near our young people so that when they develop, they develop well. And just to finish off, uh, let's come back to that Facebook poll question today. If Humpty Dumpty was addicted to drugs or alcohol, did Humpty fall or was he pushed? I know listeners will be interested in what the poll results are showing. And uh, after an hour of our conversation, 83%, Shane, are saying Humpty would fall. Uh, 17% are saying he was pushed. Uh, so there's an interesting uh, concept, yeah. an interesting perception there of listeners today uh, yes. that Humpty would fall if he was addicted to drugs and alcohol and if he was on the wall. But great insights right across that particular illustration. And all the best uh, to you, Shane Varco, as you talk some more about this Humpty Dumpty dilemma and part of World Day Against Illicit Drugs and Trafficking that is tomorrow. Let me point people to two websites. The one that. Uh, you'll find that there's going to be great opportunity to pass on to your children, teenagers, uh, from the No Brainer website, nobrainer.org.au. And to connect with Shane Varco, who is the CEO at Dalgano Institute, dalganoinstitute.org.au. That's dalganoinstitute.org.au. And Shane, just quickly, you no doubt have been uh, kept from uh, speaking to large groups because of COVID-19. Is there anything that you'd like for listeners today in connecting with some of the things that you're doing, some of the things that you're saying, uh, opportunities to be invited to speak, perhaps to a Zoom meeting or something like that. You're open to that. Yeah, absolutely. Look, we we uh, we have one of our licensee, well, our major licensee, uh, not even once has a has great webinars uh, that we do. We can operate. I can do Zoom meetings as well. But of course, our Humpty Dumpty dilemma resiliency building uh, video curriculum is now being launched as of today. Well, officially tomorrow, but tonight. It's online on the No Brainer website under, uh, you'll see under Humpty Dumpty. And you can actually, everyone right now, you don't have to be an expert in this subject, 
a parent, a sporting coach, uh, a teacher can use this as, a, as a, an addendum to helping develop resiliency as a PD tool, as a classroom tool, as a parenting tool, as a mentoring tool. They can do that right now. In fact, this the pilot's been launched and it's available online now. We're going to be adding to that every three to four weeks, a new lesson, a new, a new, uh, pr- a new video clip, which you can easily click on, play through, stop, pause, use with the young people. And we try to make that available so it's easier for people to do it without having to engage with us directly. All about building that resilience, nobrainer.org.au. Shane Varco, thanks for being with us today on 2020. As always, Neil, my pleasure. Thank you for your time. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.